God, what we need this morning is more than just a pep talk. God, we need a, uh, an encounter with you. So God, I pray that your word would speak a better word over our hearts today. God, that your word would speak a better word than what we've heard throughout our culture this past week. God, I pray that your word would speak a better word than what our enemy has whispered into our hearts and into our minds this week. God, we need your word to shape for us a picture of you that is glorious, that is majestic, that is massive. So God, we pray that we would experience you through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, parents, if I ask you the question, in what ways do you demonstrate love to your child? I wonder what your list would look like. Or if you're not a parent here this morning, if I ask you the question, how did your mom or dad show and demonstrate their love to you? What would your list include? I'm sure for many of us, we would include the fact that our parents provided for us just basic necessities of life. If they put a, a roof over our head, they put food on the table, they gave us clothes to wear. I'm sure some of us would include something to the effect that, uh, that our fathers taught us how to change a flat tire. Or, you know, maybe we were taught how to, uh, you know, make that special family recipe. Maybe you would point to that, uh, that family vacation trip to Disney World. But, but what would your list include if I asked you, how did your mom or dad demonstrate love to you? Now, if I asked you the same question as it relates to how God demonstrates his love to you, what would that list look like for you? I wonder this morning if, if any of us would include on that list as far as how God demonstrates his love to us, I wonder if any of us would include the fact that he disciplines us. I wonder if any of us would include the fact that God, out of a way to demonstrate his love, will correct his children. See, one of my goals this morning is to help us move from viewing God's discipline as just something that he does because he's holy and just, just something that's necessary because of who God is, that we would move from there into believing that one of the key ways that God demonstrates his love to his children is by way of disciplining his children. So because we're talking about uh, God's discipline in our lives, I want you to think for a moment about a season in your life or a time in your life in which you felt the discipline of God. Would you just dwell on that for a moment and I want to ask you the question, when you experienced the discipline of God in your life, was your knee-jerk response, this is God showing me love? Or was your response, where did God go? Did God leave me? Is God angry with me? Like, like which, what type of response best characterizes how you view God's discipline in our lives? And so here's the, the main idea for, the big idea for today as we look at uh, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. We're going to look at how God's loving discipline actually demonstrates his scandalous grace. This is one of the ways that God shows his kindness to us. It's one of the ways that he kind of flexes his love in our lives. And it's one of the ways that we tend to feel God's anger towards us instead of love. Like, if you're like me, when I've experienced times in which God has disciplined me in my life, my knee-jerk response is, God, what, what's going on here? Like, God, why, why are you punishing me? I thought you, you loved me. 
And so for me, I, I sometimes create this false dichotomy between God's discipline and God's love, and yet sometimes they're one and the same. So as we look at these four chapters, we're not gonna get into the weeds of each of these chapters, but I want to just point out two main themes that we see throughout these four chapters that will form two main sections for today. That first, we're gonna look at sin's damaging impact on our lives today. We're gonna look at kind of the depths of what sin has done in Israel and then look at how sin actually impacts us. And then secondly, we're gonna look at God's loving discipline, how God loves us by disciplining us. Now, these chapters, uh, chapter seven, eight, nine, and 10 of Hosea remind me of a story that I once heard of a man who went to go see the doctor. He went to see the doctor and he said, doctor, everything on my body hurts. And so the doctor said, okay, well, just point to, to what hurts. And so he says, well, my shoulder hurts and my stomach hurts and my head hurts. And the doctor stopped him and he said, you dummy, you, you have a dislocated finger. There we go, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I share that with you because sometimes when we experience like, our, like everything about our lives is just like falling apart, sometimes we feel like we've got so many issues going on. Like we point to relationship issues, we point to relationships at work, we point to relationships with our kids, and we're like, man, I feel like we've got so many things going on, and yet what tends to happen is that there's only one problem, and it's our hearts. Uh, typically, when we say, man, my life is falling apart, it's usually just your heart that's expressing and demonstrating some of the sin that's underneath the surface. And that's, exa that's exactly what's taking place in the nation of Israel. That as we look at these four chapters here, we're gonna find out that Israel is falling apart. That Israel is moving from being this incredibly wealthy and prosperous and successful nation to now being taken over by the Assyrian Empire into captivity. That they're moving from being this, this nation that was known for having all kinds of resources and now they're experiencing a great drought. Their resources have become sparse. They're losing their independence as a nation and being taken over by a foreign nation. And yet all of these problems that they were experiencing were the result of a heart that was full of sin. And so let's look first at sin's damaging impact upon our lives. Now, the reason why I wanna start here before we get to God's loving discipline is because I believe that discipline is not fully utilized, it's not fully appreciated until sin is clearly understood and clearly defined. Now, if you're in a position of, of authority, like mom and dad, you, you understand this principle when you're trying to figure out, like, how do we discipline our children? Like, when is a behavior from our child, uh, when is that demand that we discipline them? What, what act of disobedience? And so you have to clearly define what sin is before discipline can be fully utilized. Because if you don't know what sin is, if you don't know what disobedience is, then you're either not going to discipline or you're not going to discipline consistently. And so the lens that I wanna look at sin through is the lens of what does sin do to us? How does sin impact our lives? Now, now we know that sin impacts God right? Sin is cosmic treason against God Almighty. We've seen that throughout Hosea. We know that sin is rebellion against God. 
We know that, that we're breaking God's standard of holiness, that we're falling short of his glory. We know that it, it grieves us. We know that there are things that, that sinning does to God. But I, I wanna look at what does sin do to us? Because I think looking at it from that perspective will help us better understand God's discipline as an act of love in our lives. And so as we look at Israel in these chapters, we're gonna notice that they continue to progress in their sin. If you made a list of all kinds of ways that they were unfaithful to God, that list would be incredibly long and large. And yet here, they just add to that list that we're gonna see that Israel is demonstrating unfaithfulness now through international issues, that they're trying to expand their border, which reflects a discontent on the land that God had given them, that Israel finds themselves in war and multiple wars, that their practices by military and political leaders are deceitful, it's corrupt, that they're described as having a love for bloodshed. And so as we look at Israel and sin's damage upon Israel, I want us to even cross over that cultural bridge and see how it also impacts us. So four things I wanna point out about how sin impacts us. So here's number one, is that sin darkens our understanding. Sin darkens our understanding. Look with me at chapter one, verses one and two. It says, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. Now chapter seven opens up with more sin from the nation of Israel. We learn in verse one how their sin is now bubbling over into Samaria, that they're deceitful, they're stealing. They're described as bandits raiding outside. These are clear violations about what it means to live in a faithful relationship with God. And yet notice what verse two says. Notice how God describes him. He says that Israel does not consider that I remember all their evil. That's really interesting to describe the condition of Israel here. Israel is now at a point in which they are unaware of the fact that God sees it all. Now, Israel would theologically agree that God sees it all, that he's omnipresent, that he sees all of their sin, but for some reason, they don't really know that here in their experience, that they're just blissfully aware that God is not seeing and watching all of their disobedience that they actually believe that they're getting away with the, with the sin that they're committing. And this is something that sin does in our lives, that sin darkens our understanding to the point that it, it impacts our view of God and what we believe to be true about who God is and who we are. That sin changes and impacts how we think about the truth of who God is. Look at how Paul explains this in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 18 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now listen how Paul describes them. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. 
So Paul's describing what life before Christ outside of faithfulness to God is, that their understanding is darkened. And this is exactly what sin does to us, that it clouds our minds. It wages war against the truth about God. And just like in the garden, when Satan through the serpent tempted Eve, do you remember what his strategy was? He came up to Eve and he said, did God really say? See, and through that strategy, Eve falls into temptation and Satan uses that same strategy against the nation of Israel and Satan uses that same strategy against us. That's something that sin wants to do is it wants to impact our view of God. It attacks what we believe to be true about God and it wants us to shrink how big our God is in our minds and it wants to enlarge our view of ourselves. See, sin wants to deceive us into believing the lie about sin. That sin comes to us and says, man, no one's gonna find out about this. This this isn't gonna hurt anybody. Come on, you've you've had a long day. You've had a a long season. Come on, you, you deserve this. See, sin comes to us and deceives us by by impacting and trying to alter what we believe to be true. It darkens our understanding. I'm like, this is why it is so important to guard both our hearts and our minds. This is why it's so important to put off the old man and put on the new, to making sure that we are feeding our minds the truth about God so that we are able to resist and stand firm against the lies of the enemy. Look, we are constantly being bombarded with lies about God. We are constantly being bombarded about twisting the the truth of Scripture. And that's part of the strategy of sin and the impact of sin is it wants to darken our understanding about who God is in our lives. And this is what Israel has fallen into. Now, number two, the second thing that sin does in us that it impacts us is that sin calluses our hearts. It calluses our hearts. Look with me at chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. It says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. I'll unpack that in a moment. Verse 9 says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Now, these verses, they describe what happened to Israel over the last two decades in the face of an increasing Assyrian power. That they're characterized here by frantic foreign policy shifts. They're making alliances with Egypt and Assyria and Damascus. If you notice here, if you, know, if you know Old Testament history with Israel, they make an alliance with a country or with another nation, and then they go to war, and then they break that alliance, and then they go to war. They make another alliance, and they go to war, and they break that alliance, and they go from nation to nation to nation, going to war, trying to expand their boundaries, and all the more, they're breaking these alliances with nations that God has declared do not make alliances with. This is Uh, the nation of Israel demonstrating a failure to return to God, as verse 10 says. And then you get to verse 8, and it says that that they're they're mixed up. They're mixing themselves with other nations. And it says that Ephraim is a cake that's not turned. 
This metaphor is actually really insightful about the condition of Israel and the condition of their hearts. This metaphor is communicating to us that Israel is is half-baked. They're like a flat loaf of bread that they're not turned over. This metaphor basically describes Israel as, as a piece of bread, and it's supposed to be pressed on all sides against the hot oven, and yet they're, they're failing to be turned over. And what, what's being described here is that Israel is, is rigid and crusty and callous towards God, and yet the soft, doughy part is towards other nations and towards other idols, Now, what's being described here is that the nation has hardened their hearts against God and they're not being turned over against other nations. See, instead of Israel coming to their senses and saying, man, what have we done? Like, this isn't working, going to nation to nation to nation. We need to return back to God. Instead of having that type of response, they continue to go to all these other idols, They continue to go to to Egypt and Assyria and to Damascus, trying to find their identity and their worth in all of these other nations while developing a hardened and a callous heart to God and the things of God. This is what sin does in our lives is it makes our hearts callous to him. Paul, even in Ephesians 4, he goes on. And he says in verses 18 and 19 that they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of hearts. That they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says that your mind becomes darkened and then your heart is then impacted by a hardness and that's because the heart is callous to the things of God. Even Hebrews chapter three, uh, verse 13 speaks into this as well. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as, long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, the deceitfulness of sin leads our hearts to becoming hard and becoming callous. In high school and in college, when, when I was playing basketball a lot, they, our, our coaches had us uh, in the weight room a lot. We had to uh, lift weights. And I remember during the season, lifting a lot of weights, I, I developed a lot of uh, calluses on my hands. And calluses, as you know, are formed because of repeated friction, repeated irritation. And so something that would develop here, these calluses, this hard, thick skin, was, was kind of a, a way to, to desensitize my hands from, from that friction, from that repeated action. And so one thing I would notice during the basketball seasons, I, was, I would catch a basketball and I wouldn't always feel it because I lost the sensitivity in my hands. In fact, my calluses got so bad, I was like poking it with a pen, just trying to see if I could actually feel anything there. And I like lost all feeling there because of the calluses and the hardness of, of my skin. And I share that with you because look, that is exactly what happens when you are living in sin. That sin develops this callousness around our hearts. Our hearts become hardened and we lose that, that sensitivity to the things of God. We no longer feel the conviction of God in our lives, that we no longer are repenting consistently. We've lost that that joy and that love for God, all because our hearts have become callous to the things of God, that we're numb to spiritual things. 
that you might have experienced this in your own life. Like when your heart becomes hardened or callous and, and someone across the table is, is sharing something about, about God or something that they're learning in the word, you've noticed that inwardly you're like, why, why are we talking about God right now? It's not Sunday, it's not church. Like, like, like let's, let's change the subject. And that, that's expressing a heart that has become callous and hard to the things of God. Like this can be experienced even, even in community that when someone's trying to, trying to share their hearts with you and you notice that there's, there's kind of a lack of compassion for them, there's a lack of kind of entering into other people's sufferings and hurts, that's a hardness of heart that's developed in your life. And I think what's, what's really dangerous about having a hard heart is that you can actually be stimulated theologically up here in your mind all the while your heart is hard towards the things of God that you can engage in theological debates. You can learn more things about God, and yet there's a gap between your mind and your heart because your heart is callous, that your affections and your passions and your desires for God are not being stirred up and they're not growing, even though you're gaining more heart knowledge or more head knowledge because your heart has become hardened and therefore you won't live out all the things that you know. So this is one of the most dangerous places to be is to be religious or to be spiritual and yet have a callous heart. That you can never miss a church attendance. You can come in here every single week. You can read the Bible every single day and yet because your heart is hardened, because you're living in sin, you will not apply it and your affections will not be stirred up because that heart is now callous to the things of God. And that is exactly what is being described with the nation of Israel. They're not turning back to God. They're, they're rigid towards God and looking to these other nations for their hope and for their rescue. Number three, another way that sin impacts us is that sin diminishes our purpose, diminishes our purpose, that sin actually impacts the assignment that God has given us. And specifically, God has given us this assignment to reach other people uh, for Jesus. Look with me at chapter eight, verses eight through 10. Look at what's being described here. That Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as what? As a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. That though, though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon arrive because of the tribute. Now verse eight calls Israel a useless vessel. And the reason for that is because of verses nine and 10. They've turned to Assyria, as we've already mentioned. They've turned to their gods as lovers. Verse 10, they've become allies to other nations. And yet what God is declaring here is that Israel is now disqualified from actually being in a position to reach the other nations because of their sin. If you remember the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel in order for them to bless other nations. That was God's kind of evangelistic strategy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose, I'm gonna take the, the weakest and the smallest nation and I'm going to bless them. And they're not supposed to be inwardly obsessed and just enjoy that blessing, but they're actually to become a blessing to other nations. So God chooses Israel 
And he says, this is how I want you to bless other nations. This is how I want you to reach other nations. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. I want you to follow these laws and and the commands so that other nations look at the nation of Israel and they start scratching their heads wondering, what is so different about Israel? Why do they act this way? Why, Why does God, why does Yahweh fight for them? Why does God provide for them and guide them? What is so different about the nation of Israel? And through that, through their holiness, they were, they were able to kind of woo other nations uh, to God and to God's glory. Well, what we see happening here with the nation of Israel is that sin has hijacked Israel's purpose to reach Assyria and the surrounding nations. That instead of being holy and different, following God's commands, they, are, they have become allies with these other nations. They have taken on their forms of worship and their gods and has resulted into sin. So as a result, God calls them a useless vessel. Their purpose has become diminished. <clears throat> do you see the, the damaging impact of sin? Do, do you see that, that when we sin, it, it doesn't just impact just us, just, just me, but it actually impacts those around us, that sin wants to diminish the purpose of of multiplying what God has done in you in other people. Sin wants to kind of hijack your ability to live out the Great Commission. Sin wants to sabotage your, your reputation and your testimony with your neighbors and with your coworkers. Sin wants you to become complacent, wants you to kind of lose that fire for Jesus and for the gospel. And yet one thing that we see, one of the the big takeaways throughout the book of Hosea is that we not only see, but we feel God's wrath towards sin. We, We see and we feel God's judgment against sin, God's passion for his glory and for holiness in such a way that it results in two realities. That when we see God's wrath for sin, it should on the on one hand result in a motivation for us to live a godly life. That looking at Hosea, we should conclude, man, we gotta be holy. We, we gotta repent quickly, turn from sin, and pursue godliness. That's one reaction. But the other reaction to seeing God's wrath against sin is that we should be inspired to taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that need it. See, if we're, if we're reading this correctly, and we're seeing God's hatred for sin, God's judgment against sin, that should motivate us to taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need it around us. See, if, if, it's, if we're not concluding that, we're missing something here. And so we've, we've been in this, this evangelism challenge as a church over the last couple of months, haven't we? We've we set out this goal that by the end of October, we, we wanted to share the gospel a thousand times as a church that we wanted each person to share the gospel twice and, and for us just to take a step in sharing Jesus with other people. Now, the reason for that is because we believe Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. We believe that there is a wrath that is coming for those who are outside of Jesus. In fact, some of you might be here today because you were invited by someone here and, and you may not be a Christian. And I want you to know you're not just a number to us. You're, you're a real soul, and we believe that Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves, that we wanna share him with you today, that our hope is that you would submit and surrender yourself to Jesus, placing your faith upon him because he's paid for your sins on the cross. 
that you don't have to experience the wrath of God because Jesus has already taken it for you. And so we've been in this challenge because, man, we, we wanna focus our church, we wanna focus on sharing Jesus with other people because his wrath is real, because there is a judgment that is coming for those who are not in Christ. And even in, in chapter three, in Hosea chapter three, when we saw that, that God told Hosea the prophet to go and find his wife, Gomer, who, who was back in the sex slave industry, back as a prostitute. And God calls Hosea, he says, go and find your wife, go bring her back. And we looked at that chapter as how God, is, uh, God told Hosea that as a way to demonstrate his love for the people, that we are Gomer, that we are the ones who are lost, we are the spiritual adulterers. We are the ones who have left God and our Hosea, Jesus, who is the greater and the better Hosea, has come and he has found us, that he has rescued us. He has opened our blind eyes. He has given us the gift of faith to believe in Jesus, to turn from our sins. And one thing that is true biblically about gomers who have been rescued is that rescued gomers go and rescue other gomers, that those who have been rescued by Jesus, they cannot keep that to themselves, but they must find other people who are spiritual adulterers, who are lost, who are not in a relationship with Jesus, and they go and they pursue them because they have experienced the grace and the kindness and the love of Jesus. Look, that is our purpose as the people of God. So does that describe you today? That describe, are you, are you a person who is multiplying what God has done in you in other people? Are you searching for other gomers in your community? Or could God describe you as a useless vessel? Has sin just hijacked your purpose in your life? Has, has sin halted your ability to, to share the gospel? So this is one of the ways that sin impacts us. It diminishes our purpose. Now, number four, the last thing I want to point out about what sin does to us is that sin destroys our lives. This is the aim of sin, and we see this taking place in uh, the nation of Israel. Look at Hosea chapter 8, verses 3 through 8 with me. We see the, the coming destruction of Israel because of their sin. Verse 3 says, Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. That I have spurned your calf, O Samaria, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. That the standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Now here we see the goal of sin is destruction. We will reap what we sow. And like Israel in verse seven, who sow the wind, they reaped the whirlwind of destruction. This is what sin wants to do in our lives. This reminds me of, of what I recently found out about how uh, an Eskimo kills a wolf. 
Now you may know this, but what an Eskimo does in order to, to kind of capture and kill a wolf is an Eskimo will actually take a dagger, really, really sharp dagger, and it will coat it with a layer of blood. And it'll freeze so that that blood stays on the dagger, and then it'll add another layer of blood, freeze that, add another layer, another layer, another layer, and that Eskimo will actually place that dagger into the ground with the dagger uh, pointing straight up. Now, a wolf will smell that blood because they have an amazing sense of smell, and they'll walk up to that dagger, and because they're so intoxicated with that blood, they'll start licking that dagger. They'll start licking the blood that was frozen, the blood will start to melt, and they'll start to lick this dagger. They'll go through each layer of the blood until they get to the sharp point of that dagger, and they'll just keep on licking the dagger because they're so caught up with the, their, their appetite for blood. And so they'll keep licking until they're actually licking and eating their own blood. They're actually being satiated with their own destruction until they actually die. I didn't know that until recently, but I, I, upon reading that, learning that, I thought that is exactly what sin does in our lives. That's exactly the goal and the aim of sin. That sin wants to numb us in order to destroy us. That sin wants to cause us to be so intoxicated with, its, with sin that it leads to our own destruction. So I just wanna lovingly say that, look, if, if you are caught into sin today, I want you to know that, that that might feel good for a moment, but it is rotting your soul, leading you to destruction. That, that lying or cheating or pornography or flirtation or whatever it is in your life, look, it might feel good for a moment, but it is leading you down a path of destruction that is very, very similar to how Eskimos kill wolves. And so just to summarize what sin does to us, I shared this quote a couple weeks ago by a pastor who uh, lived over the last couple of decades. He said this about sin, that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. That, that is what sin will do in our lives. Now, you might be wondering yourself, okay, now what? <laughs> like if, if that describes my life, if that describes your life or maybe somebody close to you who has a, a heart that's hard, has a, a calloused heart, may, maybe that picture of, of that wolf and that illustration resonates with you or maybe someone close to you, you might be thinking, man, what do we do then? Like, where, what's the answer for a heart that's become hard to God? Well, the answer is God's love. And it's God's love demonstrated in his discipline. Look, part of the reason why I wanted to start with sin's damaging impact is because I wanted us to see that the way that God disciplines us is for our joy, not as a way to rob us of joy. See, sometimes when we experience God's discipline, we think that he's just out to get us. We think that he's trying to, to ruin our fun or ruin our joy, but in reality, when we look at what sin is trying to do to us, we can conclude that God's discipline is there to restore our joy by bringing us back to him in, uh, in repentance. Now, if, if you're here today and, and you have a, a wayward child, or maybe you have someone close to you, a friend or family member that has walked away from the Lord, 
and you just, you pray daily that God would grab a hold of their life, that God would turn them in repentance. I just want to lovingly encourage you today by saying that in order for that person to come back to the Lord, it is not up to you. It is, it is not up to you. Like, like you need to release the, the control and the need to want to try to save whoever that person is. Now, now be faithful, pray, speak when it's appropriate, like drench the truth about Jesus in grace and in kindness, but understand that for some, for some people who have walked away from Jesus, it will take the discipline of God in order to bring them back to the fold. It's not up to you. That is God's doing. That is God's work. And we see that with the nation of Israel, that God is trying to turn his people here. Verse, or chapter nine, verse nine, says that God will punish Israel for their sins. Chapter 10, verse 10, it says that God will discipline them and that the nations will be against them, that God is disciplining Israel because of the damage that sin has done on his people, that God is trying to love them by causing repentance to come through his discipline. Now, <clears throat> the crazy thing about Israel, and really the, the crazy thing probably about God here, is the fact that all of this was predicted 700 years before it even happened. That in 1400 BC, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 45 through 51, that might be a good homework assignment later today, all of this was predicted in precise detail. God actually predicted that Israel would turn from him. God actually predicted that Israel's heart would become hard and callous and that God would have to bring in other nations as a form of discipline in order to cause repentance to take place in the nation. Now, I'm, I'm reading that this week and I'm thinking to myself, like, why? Like, why would God do that? Why would God allow all of this to occur? And, and I concluded two things that God is committed to. Two things that this, I think this teaches us, that through God's discipline, we learn that God is committed to his glory and God is committed to loving his people ferociously. And what we learn about God's discipline to his people is that those two realities actually come together, that God's glory, his passion for his name and his love for his people both come together in the way that he disciplines us. Because for God to discipline us, he is trying to preserve his glory that is being displayed and manifested through his people. He's trying to ensure that the way that we reflect who God is and what he is like to a watching world is pristine. And so when we get caught up into sin, God will discipline us in order to cause us to repent so that we better reflect his glory and his name to a watching world. But also, God's discipline is the way that he loves us because he knows what sin's aim is, that sin wants to destroy us, that sin wants to, wants to take over our purpose in our lives, and so he will discipline us to cause us to repent. Now, I, I wanna be clear today that, that not all suffering that we experience is a form of God's discipline, that sometimes the suffering that you and I experience is just the result of living in a fallen world. 
And if you're wondering, well, how do I know the difference? That's an excellent question to talk about in your small group later today or next week. If, if you're in a season where you're thinking, is this suffering from a fallen world or is this discipline? I don't know the difference. Just ask your small group and dialogue about that. But what Israel failed to understand is that discipline that they received from God was an act of grace and love for their good and for God's glory. And this is a warning for us that as we live in the new covenant, as we live in our relationship with Jesus, where we will stumble, we will have seasons of falling into sin, our posture towards God's discipline must be one where we receive it and we receive it because we know that God wants to love us and woo us back to him. So look, if you're in a season where you're under the Lord's discipline right now, I just want to encourage you with, with three things to keep in mind, and I'll be brief here. Three things, if you're in a season of the Lord's discipline, number one, thank him. Thank him for his discipline. Be grateful that God is not giving up on you. Be grateful that God is chasing you and pursuing you through this discipline. When I played basketball, the, my, me and my teammates would always get, um, we had this little joke because we would actually get nervous when the coach would stop yelling at us. That when the coach would, would just ignore us, that's when we knew we were in trouble. But when he yelled at us, he's trying to help us. He's trying to grab hold of our attention. And that's what God does in, in the discipline. So number one, thank him. Number two, repent. If you're under the Lord's discipline, there's a reason for that. God is trying to just take your hands that have gripped hold of your idols and just release the fingers uh, around that idol and around that sin. So repent and turn from that sin. And then number three is remember. Like remember what it's like to be under the discipline of the Lord. So as you transition out of that discipline, you can remember what it's like to be under the discipline of God and say, I don't want that again. I don't wanna be under that. I, I don't wanna be anywhere near sin. If I fall into sin, I'm gonna quickly repent because I know what that's like. See, sometimes God allows us to taste the consequences of our sin so that we, we sometimes live with kind of that bitter aftertaste in our mouth as a way for us to remember what not to go back to. And so sometimes we live the Christian life as we follow Jesus. We're, we're just guzzling the grace of God in our lives because we have that, that aftertaste of sin and that, that's there to cause us to remember of what, to, what not to go back to, to remember what that was like to be out of fellowship with the Lord. And so do you view God's discipline as love today? Do you view it as, as an extension of his grace and kindness a prayer for us this week is that we would be a people that, that take sin seriously, that we fall in love with God's holiness, that we respect kind of the standards before us, and that we would embrace discipline when we receive it because we know that it's for our good and for his glory. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you do not give up on your people. God, we thank you that when we do fall into sin, God, you are still at work. And God, I pray that you would create a, a posture within College Park Fishers that when we do receive your discipline, that we would be thankful, that we'd be quick to repent, and that we would remember what that's like so we don't go back to the sin. So God, create that passion for your holiness, 
God, help us to be mindful of our purpose in this world to share the good news of Jesus with those around us. We pray for your glory and for your name. Amen.